uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 32. And as always, you know, I, I am so grateful for Pastor Mitch. Um, I was watching last week from San Diego, and so it was great to be there uh, watching and just uh, knowing that you were well cared for here and just enjoying uh, the word that he brought to us, and it was a good word. So this morning we are looking at uh, these verses here, 15 through 32. Uh, the theme of the text is the servant in the spirit. And so let's read these verses and see what the Lord has for us. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to isolation, excuse me, to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or else, how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Lord, may you add your generous blessings to the reading of your word, and may your presence here this morning be our teacher, and may you guide us, and may you bring to our hearts and our minds the, the things that we need to hear and understand, both as a church and as individual people who follow you. We trust that you will do these things because of your good name and because of your kindness toward us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So last week, we looked at that first half of the chapter where Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, and as they had walked through the fields, uh, Pastor Mitch had explained that to us, and in verse 7, he said, but if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. 
So we begin to see the heart of God that he desires people who simply love him and love him for the right reasons and we do the right things for the right reasons. You know, too often we are people who live with conditions, don't we? We look at other people and we think, if I do this for you, what are you going to do for me? But you see, our relationship with God is entirely different, isn't it? Our relationship with God is based on grace. Our relationship with God is based on love. Our relationship with God is based on mercy. And all of these things form the foundation of how we relate to him and how he relates to us. And as we come to our passage today, as we think about what Jesus did last week, he healed this man on the Sabbath who had the withered hand. And he told that man to stretch out his hand. And of course, that man on that day, whether he was a plant or whether he went there innocently as a, as a worshiper to the synagogue, as he sat there that day when Jesus called him out and he called him forth to stretch out his hand, As Pastor Mitch pointed out, it took incredible faith for him to do that because up to that moment, he had not been able to move his hand. His hand was curled up and and frozen in a position. And yet Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other one. And rather than rejoicing, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, they went out plotting how they might take counsel against him to destroy him. And how it is that they couldn't see the things that Jesus was doing as being in the name of God and being done by the power of the Spirit of God is still beyond me as I, as I sit here and I read this and I think about it. But yet they were so blinded by their rage because this man, Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah and, and who many claimed to be the Messiah, they could not accept that because he didn't fit their mold. He didn't fit their model. But Jesus now, as we continue the story, says, but when Jesus knew it, when he knew that they were taking counsel against him, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. So Jesus went out from the synagogue and he went out to a different place. We're not told where. And as he went out, these people followed him because they saw what he had done. They had been hearing what Jesus could do. And he healed them all. He didn't just heal a few. He didn't say, I've got 10 minutes. And as many people as we can get healed in 10 minutes, that's how many get healed today. Then the door is closed and we'll see you tomorrow. No, Jesus had time for people. And he had time to look them in the eye and to understand what their need was and to minister to them and to heal them. And it said he healed them all. This is one of the few rare times in the scriptures where we find that he healed them all. Usually it says he healed many or he healed some. But this time he healed everyone who came to him. And it was interesting, as Jesus healed them, he warned them not to make him known. And we still wonder at that, but we we know in retrospect that he was telling them that because his time had not yet come. He was not yet ready to have his name and his renown known everywhere because his journey was toward Jerusalem. At the end of his three-year ministry, his journey was a divine appointment uh, during the time of the Feast of the Passover, uh, still time yet future. And so he knew that if uh, he became too well-known and too much of the word was spread about him, he might not even be able to move about and do the things which 
his father had given him to fulfill. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, in verse 18, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, and whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. I want you to put your finger here and turn back in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 42, which is where this comes from. And just for context, we'll read those same verses back in Isaiah chapter 42. And then we want to take a moment and just talk about what this prophecy means. So in Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 1, God's word reads, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. So this is one of the many messianic prophecies that the Lord, the Spirit of God, gave to the prophet Isaiah and that he wrote down. And Matthew here takes this prophecy and he brings it forward. And he says, why was it that Jesus was telling the people whom he was healing uh, not to make him known? And he says here that it might be fulfilled by this prophecy. So let's take a moment and work our way through this prophecy. It starts out saying, and this is, of course, the voice of God the Father, speaking of God the Son. And he says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now we know on the day that Jesus was baptized as he went out to the Jordan to find John the baptizer, and he went forth to John. John had been saying prior to that moment, uh, one day the Lamb of God will come, and he is a man who is so uh, elevated in, in the eyes of God. He is the Messiah that he's, he's so amazing that I'm not even worthy to be his servant. I'm not even worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. And then on that day that Jesus came, walking toward John, John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then you remember as Jesus came to John, he said, I'm here to be baptized. And John said, well, no, Lord, you need to baptize me, not the other way around. I mean, you know, Permit it to be so, Lord. And he said, no, Jesus speaking to John, I, I need to be baptized by you so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. And then in that moment when John had the awesome responsibility to baptize the Lord of the universe, as Jesus came up out of those waters, those dirty, muddy waters of the Jordan River, in that moment, the voice of God spoke from heaven. Do you remember this? And he spoke and he says, Behold my son in whom I am well pleased. And that is a fulfillment of this prophecy, isn't it? Of Isaiah 42. So so God himself speaking. Now in this prophecy, God is speaking. 
And I love the fact that the New King James, unlike the other translations, will capitalize the word servant because it is speaking of a person, not just any person. It is speaking of the Lord Jesus, my servant whom I have chosen. So this is God the Father speaking of God the Son, referring to him as a servant. Now, as Jesus is ministering to people and healing them, he is being their servant. And we know that Jesus is our model in all things, isn't he? Jesus gave his life. He came not to be served, but to serve. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. So God had appointed Jesus, the son, to take on flesh, to come to the earth, his chosen one, to be his Messiah, to be the manifestation of his presence. Remember, Jesus said later, if you have seen me, you have seen the father, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. We know later in Isaiah 53, we're told that it pleased the Lord to bruise him. And so God laid upon Jesus, the servant, the iniquity of us all. And then he said, I will put my spirit upon him. Certainly Jesus being God was not a person who needed to be saved. He didn't need to have the spirit of God to enter him because the spirit of God uh, was a part of the Trinity. But he did say, I would put my spirit upon him. And you may remember that we talked about during our Holy Spirit series and multiple times whenever we have an opportunity to talk about the work and the ministry of the Spirit, that there are three relationships that we as believers have with the Holy Spirit. The first one is that he comes alongside, para, to be with us. And then he comes to dwell in us. So there's para alongside, in, where he comes to dwell in us. And then there's the coming upon of the Holy Spirit, which John prophesied and which on the day of Pentecost we are told on that day that the Spirit of God fell from heaven and came upon the disciples and the apostles. And here that same word is used, behold, I will put my Spirit upon him. So the Spirit of God, I, I can't parse this out for you. I mean, we, he's, the, he's the Son of God, and yet the Spirit of God has come upon him. And I think on the rare occasions when I know the Spirit of God is upon me, I think, wow, that's amazing. It's like a snippet of heaven. The Spirit of God being upon the Son of God. What an amazing thing. And it says, when the Spirit of God came upon him, he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Now, that is a part of the prophecy that the Jews did not like. Because to them, Gentiles were dogs. They were, they were firewood for the fuel of hell. They disregarded the Gentiles, yet the Lord spoke continuously throughout the Old Testament that his word and that his people, the Jewish people, his chosen people, were to be a light to all the nations. Yet somehow that they, they had come into a misunderstanding and a perverted view that the Gentiles should not be saved. And if they were saved, they had to denounce everything from their former life and essentially become a Jew in order to be saved. So here he will declare justice to the Gentiles. This was not part of what they understood, and this is a part of the reason why they were so violently opposed to Jesus, because they knew that he had this bent to go to the Gentiles to love the Gentiles. And it says in verse 19 here, he will not quarrel nor cry out. Now, Jesus didn't quarrel, but we know he had some pretty intense interactions with the scribes and the Pharisees. We're going to come into some of that a little bit later in our 
study in the book of Matthew. But Jesus was not a quarreler. He's not a person who picked fights with people. It says, nor cry out. That means he was not uh, walking through the streets, tooting his own horn, crying out, hey, I'm the Messiah, look at me. Instead, he allowed his works to speak for themselves. And he says, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus wasn't there to make a lot of noise. That's why he said, when he healed people, don't go tell everybody what happened. And it says, as we continue on, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Perhaps these are strange terms to our ears. But if any of you have done any gardening whatsoever, you know that when you see a stalk of a plant that, you know, typically they're round and they're filled with the fluids, the nutrients that are going to it, and when they get bumped or bent, they break or they at least crease. And so when they fall over, they never, fall, they never come back up. It's not like you can bend them back. And so a bruised reed, he will not break. You know, seeing that, that broken plant You know, a lot of times we look at it and say, well, it's going to die anyway, so we just cut it off. And this is saying here of the servant of Jesus, when he sees a bruised reed, and this is not talking about Jesus being a gardener. This is metaphorically using the term to apply to people. A bruised reed he will not break in a smoking flax, and that's, of course, the wick in a candle or the wick in a lamp. It was a a piece of uh, flax of... Uh, a woven material that was soaked in a wax or an oil, and, and that's how the flame would burn from that source of light. And it said that Jesus, the servant, when he sees a bruised reed, he won't break it off. And when he sees a smoking flax, in other words, one that's gone out, one that's perhaps out of fuel, that's out of oil, he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory. And here's something that we need to understand about our Lord Jesus Christ, about the servant. Because, you know, we are bruised reeds, are we not? We are smoking flaxes, meaning perhaps the flame has gone out. And sometimes, because of the way we are, because of the hardness of our hearts, we'll see someone who's a broken individual. And we might look at that person and think, it's a lot of effort to help that person. They're going to take hours of counseling. Maybe they're just a really messed up individual. But it says here that our Lord, when he sees that bruised reed, he will not break it off. When he sees that smoking flax, it's no longer good to give light. He will not quench it. You know, like many of us might walk by, lick our fingers and quench that little wick. You see, Jesus cares. He's a different kind of person. You remember when Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan? of how each of those people in his story walked by, and they were different people. One person is on their way to worship, a priest or whatever, and they walk by and they see this person all beat up, lying in the road, a bruised reed, a smoking flax. And then they look at them and say, oh, well, you know, I really don't have time for this. I got to get to church. So they head on out to church, and the next guy comes by, and the same thing happens. But then this traveler comes by, and he sees this person, And as he sees this person, he looks at them and he says, this person, in essence, is a bruised reed and a smoking flax. And so what does he do? He he picks that person up. He nourishes and nurtures them. He takes them to a hotel, if you will, an inn. 
And he pays for that person to be healed and he cleansed his wounds and he gave him new clothes. And he said, when I come back next time, if there's anything that this gentleman has credited or rather has accumulated as charges, you credit it to my account and I will pay you. And that's the kind of picture that our Lord gives us of who he is. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're a bruised reed, if you are a smoking flax, you're in the right place. You've come to the Lord. You see, we all have something, don't we? We all have something that we hurt over, something that's broken in our lives. Maybe it's a sin. Maybe it's something from the past that we just can't get over and we can't forgive ourselves for. Maybe it's a broken relationship, whatever it might be. Jesus looks at us and he looks at people. He looks at broken people and he says, they're the kind of people I'm here for. He said earlier, he said, I did not come to those who are well. I came as a physician to those who are sick, to those bruised reeds and to those smoking flaxes. And so he came to heal those who are broken. We thank God that he came to be that servant. We thank him that he came to be the person that we need. He came to be the person to bind up our wounds. One person said this, Jesus wants us to have his heart towards the lowly, the broken, and the hurting. It's easy to pass them by just as quickly as the priest and the Levite passed the man on the road to Jericho. The superficial Christian worker ignores that kind of situation. He wants a sphere to serve where it will be worthy of his talent. A task where his abilities will be recognized and used. Something that's big enough to justify all the training he or she has undergone. In the eyes of the Lord, the test of a real servant is, does he bend with the humility of Jesus Christ over a bruised reed or a smoking flax? This is our Lord. This is the servant that he came to be to us and to anyone who is broken and needy. You see, Jesus doesn't kick those kind of people to the side. He loves them. He nourishes them. He cares for them. And we can understand as we turn back to chapter 11 of Matthew, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Did you notice there in verse 28, he says, I will give you rest. And then he says, as you come to him, he says, you will find rest. You see, he gives us rest, but also as we come to him, we will find rest. And that's Jesus taking care of of the broken reed, the bruised reed, and the smoking flax. Well, in verse 22, we have an example of someone brought to him. This one, uh, then one, was brought to him who was demon-possessed. He was blind and mute, and he, that is Jesus, healed him, so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. Now, remember all the people Jesus has encountered up to this point in time? A little girl who was sick, one who was dead, a servant was, was ill. Uh, Peter's mother-in-law was ill. Remember that Jesus cast demons out of people, the, the man over in the Gadarenes who had a legion of demons inside of him, the two men that met him as he got out of the boat. 
Remember, Jesus had already met a mute man who was demon-possessed. And now we find that Jesus meets a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute. So this man is really bound up by Satan. And it says, and Jesus healed him so that the blind and the mute man both spoke and saw. I can't imagine having any one of those infirmities, being blind or being unable to speak, but having both of them and being possessed by a demon. And Jesus had compassion on this man, and he healed him. He cast out the demon, and now the man could both speak and he could see for the first time. And all the multitudes were amazed, and they said, Could this be the son of David? Could this really be the Messiah? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, rather than rejoicing in this man who was bound with iniquity, rather than rejoicing in his healing, the Pharisees heard it, and they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, this term could also be understood in a different context to mean the ruler of a household, just like there was often a master of a household. And so in this situation, the ruler of the household, Beelzebub, the household of demons, he's saying Jesus casts out demons because the ruler of the household, of demonic household, is giving Jesus power to do these things. Now, when you think about the character and the nature of Satan— We know that Satan has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy. Why would Satan heal people? Why would Satan cast out demons? I mean, the demons are Satan's servants. In essence here, they are charging Jesus with sorcery. But Jesus knew their thoughts, verse 25, and he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, this should be a basic principle we should all understand, right? If your house is divided, and if we have conflict in our homes and we are divided, then that house cannot stand, that house cannot move forward. The prophet Amos says, how can, how can we move forward unless we are agreed together? We need to be in agreement to walk together. So when we see a house that is divided, we know that house has trouble. That house will not stand. And then you think about a kingdom. Well, certainly a kingdom and a government, if it's divided, that kingdom will fall. Makes me wonder what's going to happen with our country. I see the bumper stickers. I don't know if you've seen them. That, that say something like this, and of course the implication is we want everybody to agree. But you see, that will never happen. As long as the church is here, as long as there are holy and righteous people, as long as there are people who love God, we will not agree on things like abortion and homosexuality. We will not agree on the things that are clearly stated in God's word as things that we should stay away from. And yet people want us to agree so that we can be a united nation, Well, the nation was united before we embraced sin of every kind as being okay. So Jesus is saying here, uh, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, how does that make any sense? He is divided against himself. 
how then will his kingdom stand? Or if we said this in a slightly different way, is Satan so dumb as to have his own kingdom be divided? Don't you think Satan would have his minions and his generals lined up and marching to his orders? Of course he would. We are told in the scriptures, Satan is a, is a schemer and a conniver. Ephesians chapter 6, if, if the wiles of the devil and the schemes of Satan mean anything, they mean that he's a planner, that he thinks things through. So Satan is certainly not divided against himself. And he says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the house, how do your sons cast them out? Now, there were itinerant Jewish exorcists. Perhaps you'll remember the story in Acts chapter 19. In Acts chapter 19, there were the seven sons of Siva. And they had seen what Paul had done. They had heard about what Jesus had done. And they had gone out trying to exorcise demons from people. And as they did that, they encountered this one demon who spoke back to them. He actually talked back. And he said, okay, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? And it says that demon then leapt out of that man and beat up the seven of them and basically gave them what we would call, at least what I would call from where I'm from, a good old-fashioned whooping. And he sent them home with their tail between their legs. And as we think about those kinds of situations, and we know that there were other places where there were Jewish exorcists traveling around trying to cast out demons, for what purpose? To glorify God or to prove that they had some unique and special power? Jesus says, if I am a part of the rulership of the household of demons and I'm casting demons out, how does that make any sense? He's sort of flipping around the idea of the strong man in the house is the ruler of the house. And he says, they shall be your judges. In other words, your sons, the ones who are actually casting out demons in the name of God, they shall be your judges because if you're saying I'm demon-possessed and basically anyone who uh, can cast out demons is doing it by the power of the demons, then you're saying your sons are being empowered by demons. Spurgeon said this about people who are filled with envy. Envy causes persons often to condemn in one what they approve in another. And isn't that the way it is so often? We find something about someone that we don't like, and then we realize that what we don't like is because they're They remind us of ourselves. He says in verse 28, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, so there's the two options. Am I casting out demons by the power of Satan, or am I casting out demons by the Spirit of God? Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So in other words, guys, you have to square with something. There's two possibilities here. One is pretty remote that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, or the other one is that I'm casting demons out by the Spirit of God. Remember that, that passage from Isaiah 42 that we just read, that the Spirit of God would come upon the servant of the Lord, and Jesus is doing these things by the power of the Spirit of God. Surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? So now he's making it plain to them. In order for that to happen, if you were going to go in and take something that's not yours, if you wanted to plunder a strong man's house, 
You go in first, you take the strong man captive, you bind him, you set him in a corner, you make him immobile and immovable, and then you take the spoils. And he says, so you're saying I would go into Satan's house, who's given me power to cast out Satan, I would bind Satan, and then I would cast Satan out. That doesn't make any sense. But what he is saying is this. If I've entered the strong man's house and I'm plundering it, in other words, I'm taking back people from the kingdom of Satan for the kingdom of God, one soul, one person at a time, then in essence, he's saying, I'm binding Satan, who is the strong man, and I'm plundering his house. And so that's something that I think they could not understand. I'm not under Satan's power. You are. That's what Jesus is saying. And now he says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So Jesus is making something very clear. This is a line in the sand, and this is a good verse to highlight or to underline. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Now, as I was reading this and just thinking about it, the story from the, the letter of Jesus, it's not a story, it's a letter, it's, it's truth. Uh, in Revelation chapter 3, one of the seven letters to the seven churches, this was the, uh, the church uh, of Laodicea. So again, the context of this, what I'm about to say is, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor, excuse me, cold nor hot, and I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Sometimes it's clear and it's evident those who are for him and those who are against him. But Jesus says you're either for or against that there is not a middle ground yet. This letter that he wrote to this church seemed to indicate that this church thought that there was a middle ground. And that middle ground would be classified as straddling the fence, being lukewarm, being neither cold nor hot. And when Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters, he's essentially saying, I want you to be cold or hot so I know where you stand. But he has no patience, no tolerance for the lukewarm person, for the one who will not make a commitment, for the one who maybe says they make a commitment, but they do not follow the Lord. So Jesus now challenging this situation that 
he's been healing people. He's healed this man. He's cast out this demon. And now the, the Pharisees coming up against him saying, you only do what you do because Satan is empowering you. Now listen in that context to what Jesus says here in these last two verses. Therefore I say to you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will uh, be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So what is all this talking about? This is something that gives people a lot of trouble. This idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or against the Spirit. Well, the word blaspheme or, or blasphemia means slander. It means to speak against. It can also mean vilification, evil speaking, saying something that's injurious to another's character or good name. So in essence, when you see the word blasphemy, just understand it as someone who's speaking against another person. They're basically defaming that person's character. They're casting doubt and shadows on who they are and what their intent is. So now Jesus applies this term here and says, uh, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. So people say things all the time, don't they? Don't people constantly defame character? Don't we hear blasphemy every day on the news? We do. He says, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Why? Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man. People use the name of Jesus as swear words, don't they? It's constant. We hear it all the time. Jesus and Christ are constantly used as swear words. Jesus says, even that, whoever's speaking against the Son of Man, meaning Jesus the Messiah, it will be forgiven. This kind of blows my mind. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Now, before I share a couple more verses, I want to just, again, I was thinking and praying about this. And, you know, there's something that we need to deal with in our hearts. And it's something that happens in part just from being in the world, from living in society. And again, our news media and the media that's out there often develop this within us. And I'm talking about the spirit or an attitude of cynicism, of doubting. You know how we can be. We can look at something and somebody will say, well, you know, perhaps the Lord will redeem that situation. And then the other person will look at it and say, yeah, I've seen this a million times. It's not going to end well. Right? And we can have this cynicism, this cynical attitude about what's happening around us. Or we can look at a situation, you know, God's placed us in a situation, perhaps in the place where you work. And maybe there's some bad eggs, some bad people there. And they're making bad decisions. And you're the victim. You're being caught up in this because you work in that situation. It's easy for us to become cynical and doubting. And as seeing the glass is half empty. And I would say to you this, that this is the attitude that fuels unbelief and perhaps even sparks the attitude of speaking against the Holy Spirit. It says, uh, one uh, commentator said this, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or the age to come. The eternal consequences of this sin 
force us to regard it seriously. Therefore, how can one know if they have in fact blasphemed the Holy Spirit? The fact that one desires Jesus at all shows that they are not guilty of this sin, yet continued rejection of Jesus makes us more hardened against him and puts us on the path of a full and a final rejection of him. Now, in John chapter 15, Jesus said this, but when the helper comes, John 15, 26, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. So the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to testify of Jesus. A little bit later in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 7, excuse me, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, the Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world, who is Satan, is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So we have this picture of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has come to bear witness of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin. The Holy Spirit is the person who is convicting people of sin. And as the Spirit is working and moving, you see, here's the thing we need to understand When we are talking to people about the Lord or about Jesus Christ, we should do that at complete ease and without any fear. You know why? Because it is not our job to convince anybody of anything. It is the Holy Spirit's work to do that. And we are just to be a faithful witness. We just put it out there. Hey, Jesus, here's what he did in my life. Here's my testimony. Uh, Here's a scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and we give them the word of God, and we just leave it there on the table. And you see, it is between that person and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he says, will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And he says, the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. So the spirit of God is speaking the very words of God coming from the throne of God himself. And he says that uh, he is taking everything that the Father has and he is declaring it to people. So now, backing up just a bit, when he's talking here about anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that's okay. But the Spirit is speaking of me. And if you are speaking against the work of the Holy Spirit. For example, if you're saying things like, Jesus isn't God, he's the brother of Lucifer. Or if you're saying, Jesus is not God, he's just a created being, or you're saying anything about Jesus that's not true, 
Jesus says, that's okay, I can deal with that. But the issue is you have to deal with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is revealing this truth to you. And the reformers had a way of speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's just a paraphrase. This is not a verse in the Bible. But speaking of the Holy Spirit as wooing someone, of whispering to them, of ministering to them. And whenever we have the great privilege and honor of seeing someone surrender their heart to Christ, it's because the Holy Spirit has been working in their life. He has been whispering to them and speaking to them and ministering to them and bringing them to that point, that, that divine point of where man and God intersect and where we listen to the Lord and we choose to believe in him, but also God elects and he chooses and he predestinates things that are too lofty for us, but the scriptures say these things happen and they work together. So he's saying here, anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, that is against the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, if a person is saying no to the Holy Spirit, giving him the hand, giving him the stiff arm, saying, no, I don't want to hear that. Realizing that the Spirit of God is working through the Word of God, realizing that the Spirit of God is working through the testimony of God's people, realizing that the Spirit of God is working through you and me because we are to be the disciples of Jesus. We are to be the people who bear his name. We are the image bearers of God, we're told in the book of Genesis. So you see, the Holy Spirit works in multi and faceted ways. He doesn't have just one mode of operation. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, are they not? Psalm 19 tells you and me. God can work in and through anything. God can work in and through anyone. In the Old Testament, God worked through pagan nations to bring his word to his people. God can even use, if he so desires, an unholy and an unrighteous vessel to bear his word. God used the donkey, didn't he, to bring the word of God to Balaam? Think about the lengths that God the Holy Spirit goes to to communicate his truth to people. And now you have a person, a soul, who is rejecting that. Perhaps you have a soul like a Pharisee looking at Jesus, the Son of God, saying, these works that you're doing, which we now understand is being done by the Spirit of God that was upon Jesus, and they're attributing the works of Jesus to Satan, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is a, a, an example to us of what blasphemy looks like. So rest assured this morning, if you've ever wondered or worried, you know, did I commit, commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Listen, if you love God, if you have any inclination at all towards Jesus Christ, then you're not committing the blasphemy of the Spirit. But if, if this morning as you listen, you are rejecting the work of the Lord, if you're rejecting the ministry of the Spirit as he calls to you and as he cries out to you and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm the servant of God, a, a bruised reed and a smoking flax. You see, these are my people. And if you are rejecting the work of the Lord, then you are committing the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, let me say this. As long as there's breath, as long as there's life, and as long as there's light on this side of heaven, there's still an opportunity to repent. But remember, we have things in the Bible to warn us. Remember the story of Pharaoh? 
that Pharaoh continually hardened his heart against the Lord until one day we find that tragic verse where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? Because God, who sees the beginning from the end and his vantage point in heaven, saw that the Pharaoh was never going to change. May God help us that there is not one among us this morning who is in the camp of stiff-arming the Holy Spirit or resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus the servant came to reveal to us the person and the work of God. He came to reveal to us the love of God. He came to call us to the Father. He came to call us to a life of rest and peace found only in Christ. And the Spirit of God is the purveyor of that message. And if we resist that message, then we are blaspheming against the Spirit. But we pray for anyone this morning who might be in that situation, in that camp, that you are not, as one person said, on a joke or a dare, intentionally saying words that they suppose commit the sin of blasphemy against the Spirit. They think of it as a light thing. They're joking with eternity. Yet true blasphemy is against the Spirit is more than a formula of words. It is a settled disposition of life that rejects the testimony of the Holy Spirit regarding Jesus. Even if someone has intentionally said such things, they can still repent and prevent a settled rejection of Jesus into eternity. So this morning, I pray that you would understand and see and hear and receive the servant who is Jesus, and that you would not resist the work of the Holy Spirit. And for those of us who know Christ, I pray that we would go deeper and further and know in greater measure the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, I think as we grow in Christ, as we grow in all the years of our walk with God, as we uh, open his word and read it, you know, maybe in the beginning as we do that, it doesn't make sense. But, you know, as I've been reading it for I don't even know how many years now. Every time I read it, something new speaks to me. And I feel in my heart that as we continue to read God's word, he speaks to us. And he's building up that sensitivity to his voice. And as we read the scriptures, we hear the voice of the Spirit. Because the, the Spirit of God is the author of the Scriptures. All Scripture is God-breathed, God-inspired. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke. And so we need to train ourselves to hear the voice of God. And we do that by getting alone with God and hearing His Word. By sitting down alone in a, a, the proverbial prayer closet and saying, Lord, I, I need to hear from you. Speak to me. As we say things like what Samuel said as he was instructed uh, by the prophet when uh, the Lord was speaking to him in his dream, dream and the prophet said, the next time you think you hear the voice of God, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You see that attitude, that heart. And we need to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That means every decision, every plan, everything we want to do. Money we want to spend. People we want to talk to. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt when I was talking to my friend on the phone. We were driving back from the pastor's conference. It was so clear to me that it was the Lord. You need to go. It was a crazy thing. Flew out on Friday night. uh, 4.48 p.m. Jumped on a flight. Landed in San Diego. Got to their house at 9.30 p.m. 
sat up and talked till 11.30 or 12, got up the next day, spent two days together in fellowship. It was just great. Took that picture at 5 p.m., left at 6 p.m. for the airport, landed in Boston at 5.56 a.m. on Monday. It's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Cost me a bunch of money to do that. But the Lord told me to do it. He clearly told me to do it. And the Lord wants us to be like that, doesn't he? We hold life with a light grip. We don't go, oh my gosh, this is going to cost me whatever, right? I can't do that. Well, you can do it if the Lord's telling you to do it. Why? Because we need to learn to be obedient to to the voice of the Lord. We leave the results in his hands. He'll take care of it. Obedience is, is my responsibility. Taking care of the problems and the issues, that's the Lord's responsibility. Some of us have learned to think in such a boxy fashion that we think, well, I can't do that because and we have all the reasons why. You see, there's that cynical spirit. You think, well, I'm just being wise. Well, I'm not telling you not to be unwise, but, you know, if God is speaking, you've got to do it. And if you don't, you begin to cultivate that pattern of saying no to the Lord. I'm not saying that as a believer you can commit the, the, the sin of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's possible if the Spirit of God is in you. But we, when we cultivate that spirit of just saying no to the Lord when he's speaking to us, we're going to miss out on the blessing of God. We're going to miss out on what God wants to do in and through us. I mean, to me, it's exciting to think that I might be able to go back and speak at my friend's funeral. I don't know anybody there. But I do know from talking with him last week that many people in his extended family don't know the Lord, and they've been resisting the Lord for many years. In effect, they've been committing the sin of blasphemy. But what if at his funeral, God wants to use me or one of the other people who speak at his funeral to present the gospel in such a way that they're going to hear it for the first time truly in their hearts? What if they hear about this crazy dude from New Hampshire who comes out and says, I met Ken back in 1993, and we spent two years together, and that has forged a lifelong relationship that's so burned in my heart that I'm here today to tell you what kind of man this was and who he is to me and what I've seen in his life, and I saw his love for Jesus, and I'm here to testify to you today that he is a genuine 100% true convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. The people sitting in that room whom I don't know might hear those words and go, that's not the man we knew but obviously something happened to you in your relationship with him. Maybe I should listen. You see, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't even know if I'm going to get that opportunity, but if it happens, I'm going to jump at it. I'm going to take it because God might want to do something. God might want to speak the words on that day to those people, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And there might be one soul who needs to hear it. Was it worth the plane ticket and the time? to do it? Absolutely, because God cares about one bruised reed and one smoking flax. And God cares about you. Lord, we love you this morning. We're so blessed. Thank you for your love. Thank you for how you just, you just take care of us, Lord. God, help us to be sensitive to the voice of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to hear and to say yes. Help us to hear and follow. Help us, Lord, to to not be so 
wrapped around the axle about the details of everything, but just to listen and, and to be obedient and to go and to do and to see, see what you might want to do. Lord, I think of your servant Jonathan one day speaking to his servant, saying, uh, let's see what the Lord might want to do. Maybe we should go over to that mountain, to that hill, and look down at the camp of the Philistines or the Amorites and see maybe God wants to deliver them into our hands. They outnumber us, but God might want to do something, and God, you did it. Because they listen to the voice of the Spirit. And so, Lord, may we learn to listen to your voice. You said, Jesus, my sheep hear my voice. Lord, today I trust that we here in this room are your sheep. So may we hear your voice. We love you and we bless you. And Lord, if there's any this morning who they're not sure if they know you, then we just ask in this quiet moment, that they would respond to the voice of the Spirit speaking to them and say yes to you, that they would give their heart to you and that they would say, yes, Jesus. I I don't know what it's all about, but I want to be forgiven and I want to follow you. May this be for them that moment when they give their heart to you. And this morning, if that's you, would you come up later, maybe let us know so that we can encourage you, give you a Bible and pray with you. Lord, we bless you today. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.